Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me once again to the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 9, picking up where we left off last week in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. There is a famous late-night comedian who occasionally plays a game with his audience, and the name of this game is Were You Paying Attention? He'll pick out somebody from the audience and ask them a question about something that was said or something that was done earlier in the show. Now, if they were paying attention, they'll know the right answer and they get to remain. If, however, they were not paying attention, they will not have the answer. They are kicked out of the studio and replaced by someone waiting outside. Now, don't worry. I am not going to point to anyone here and ask which psalm I read earlier in the service, okay? You can breathe a sigh of relief. No one is getting kicked out today. But I tell you this because I am so glad that God does not do that with us. Because the truth is, we've all had times that we were not paying attention to God, we were not paying attention to His Word, we were not paying attention to some of those warnings that God sent our way, and therefore God had to get our attention. Now, this morning is part four of a series that we're calling When God is Getting Your Attention. We've been studying the plagues of Egypt. So far, we've looked at six, and today we're going to look at the seventh plague. And we will notice that except for the final plague, the Passover, this is the one that receives the most attention in the book of Exodus, the plague of hail. Once again, we're going to notice the plagues are increasing in severity. Last week, we saw this plague of boils that broke out upon the Egyptians, where they had these painful boils from head to toe. It was very painful, but we get to plague number seven. This is the first one in which people actually died. And once again, God is doing this to get the attention of Pharaoh, and Egypt, and even of Israel. And there are really two main points that I want to make and then explain this morning. Two things that we see that God is doing as he is getting our attention, as I believe that God is even now getting our attention as a nation and as a church. But first of all, when God is getting our attention, God reveals himself to us. He does so because he's going to reveal himself to us. Notice in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. I know I'm repeating myself a bit here, but once again, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to deliver this message, let my people go. Once again, God sends Moses to preach what is essentially the same sermon. Now, I count eight times that Moses preached this sermon to Pharaoh. He just kept preaching it over and over again until finally, after the ninth plague, Pharaoh said, that's it, 
I'm never going to see your face again. To which Moses said, that is fine by me. Verse 14 says, For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. Notice, God said, I'm going to send all my plagues, and what an interesting phrase, to your very heart. I'm going to send all my plagues. In other words, the full force of the plagues are going to come in such a way that it breaks your heart. Now, his heart hasn't been broken yet, but God said that it is going to be. And God is going to do that. So in verse 14, you will know there is none like me in all the earth. And in verse 16, he said that my name might be declared in all the earth. Everything God is doing in all of this is for the purpose of making himself known so that the peoples would know him, that he is God, that he alone is God, and he alone can save. Thus, when the Israelites eventually made it to the promised land, several times we see the Canaanites saying to them, oh yes, we heard what your God Yahweh did to Egypt. These plagues made God's name famous. And there's several things that God reveals about himself that we can see in this text. First of all, God reveals his sovereignty. God reveals his sovereignty. Notice at the beginning of verse 16, but indeed for this purpose I have raised you up. Remember to whom God is speaking. He's not speaking to Moses. He's speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. And who raised Pharaoh up? God raised Pharaoh up. Who put him on the throne? God said, I put him on the throne. It's one thing to say that God used Pharaoh. But God goes a step further. He said, I actually chose Pharaoh and raised him up so that Pharaoh would be used as a tool in God's hand to make his name famous. You know, sometimes when there is opposition in our lives or there is some kind of obstacle that rises up before us, there's this question that we ask. Sometimes we will ask, God, why did you permit this? Why did you allow blank? And it's not that it's a bad question, but there is a problem. The problem sometimes with that question is that we forget God didn't just allow blank, but God is the one who actually raised it up. Now, folks, it ought to encourage you to know that God is not just sovereign. He is so sovereign over this world. He not only raises up our help, 
But God will at times raise up that opposition. God will raise up even our enemies. You think, well, pastor, I don't find that very encouraging. Why does God do that? He does that so that he can make them serve his sovereign purposes. And when you understand that, that will change the way you deal with your problems. That will change the way you interact with those problem people in your life. God reveals His sovereignty, but God also reveals His power. Notice the next part of verse 16. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down such has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. God raised up Pharaoh, and God allowed him to be the most powerful king of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. Why did God do that? God did it so that through him, the whole world would know that not even the most powerful king of the most powerful nation can stand up to or confront the king of kings and lord of lords. That's why God did it. To teach us that lesson, there had to be a king who, humanly speaking, was powerful so that God could display that not even his power can compare to mine. Once again, we see in this plague, there were a number of Egyptian false gods that were being put on trial, that were being discredited by this plague. For example, Shu, S-H-U, was the god of the atmosphere, they believed. Newt was the goddess of the sky. Tefnut was the goddess of moisture. Seth was the god of wind and storms. Now, the Egyptians believed that you had all of these different gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and that each god had control over a different aspect of our lives. Here's one God who's controlling this, so if I need help over here, I better call upon him, but there's this other God over here, he's in control of that, and so if I need help in that, I'd better call upon him. And God brought about this plague, he brought about all these plagues, in order to teach them that the universe is not run by a committee. Having served on some committees, I praise God that the earth, the world, is not run by a committee. Amen? This universe is not controlled by a committee of gods. This earth is under the control of a single God who is almighty, all-powerful, and omnipotent. And that is what God was teaching them through this plague. Sometimes God has to get our attention to remind us of his power. But then also, when God gets our attention, it's because he's going to reveal his mercy. He does it to reveal his mercy. Notice verse 19. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, 
For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. Now, one little parenthesis that I want to insert here, something I want to explain. Last week we saw after the fifth plague, the Bible said that all of the livestock of Egypt died. But then we come to the seventh plague, and Moses tells Pharaoh, go get your livestock. Now, a lot of people think, well, is this a contradiction? If all the livestock died, where did Pharaoh get his livestock? Let me remind you, when it says that all of the livestock died, that Hebrew word all refers to all kinds of livestock. It doesn't necessarily mean that every creature died or every beast died. And it's also possible that Pharaoh decided to take for himself some of Israel's livestock after his died and theirs did not. Both of those are options. But here's the real point. God did something with this particular plague that he did not do before. God gave Pharaoh the option of escape. He gave him a way to avoid the consequences of it. Go get your beast. Go get your cattle. Go get your servants. Bring them out of the field, and they will live. Leave them there. In other words, do nothing, and they will die. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me after the first six plagues that we've looked at these last three weeks and all that came with it, Seems like Pharaoh would be in the mood to take Moses seriously this time, right? Well, he did not. Some of his servants did, though. Look at verse 20. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Yes, there were some, even in Pharaoh's own house, who decided, hey, we don't need ten plagues to convince us that Yahweh is real. Six will be just fine. And even some in Pharaoh's house, the Bible says, now notice how this is worded, they feared the word of the Lord. The word of God that was being preached by Moses. Not just the plagues, but the word that was preached. Those eight sermons that Moses kept preaching over and over again. It was the word of God proclaimed that God used to cause some in Pharaoh's household to fear the word of God and to fear the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many believed or how many may have been saved. But I'll tell you this, I believe some were saved because when we get to Exodus chapter 12 and the Israelites leave Egypt, the Bible says that a mixed multitude went with them. In other words, it wasn't just Hebrews. It wasn't 100% Israelites who decided, you know what? It's time to get out of Egypt and follow the Lord. Folks, it was God's mercy that he would send Pharaoh, a preacher, after all that he had done. It was God's mercy 
that he would give Pharaoh the opportunity of escape. You know, it's easy for us as we read through these plagues to think to ourselves, man, this is just, it's so harsh. But you know what? You begin to look at these plagues in light of all that Pharaoh had done, in light of all of the evil that had taken place in Egypt, you know what you find? You find that God wasn't being harsh. God was being merciful. He said in verse 15, if the Lord's hand had struck you, you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, it could be a lot worse than this. And so God, in all of this, was revealing His sovereignty, His power, and yes, His mercy. He also reveals His authority. In verse 22, to summarize, Moses did what the Lord told him. He stretched out his hand. The Bible says that hail fell down, mingled with fire. Reminder, this is a supernatural event. Don't try to come up with a a natural explanation for this. I would also remind you that this plague is one that will come back to visit this world one day, according to the book of Revelation, during the time of tribulation that will fall. But once again, Pharaoh asked Moses, Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for him, to make the plague end. And so Moses is going to do so. But notice what he said in verse 29. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The Bible says that God made the hail fall and he caused it to stop falling so that everyone would know that the earth is the Lord's. We remember Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And if all of the earth belongs to the Lord and everyone in it belongs to the Lord, that means there is not anyone or anything that is not under God's authority. And that means for you and me today that there is not a single aspect of our lives that does not fall under the authority of God as well. And so God reveals His sovereignty, His power, His mercy, and His authority 2,000 years ago, God did exactly that at the cross. God demonstrated through Jesus his sovereignty, taking evil, even his enemies and their evil, false accusations, and using all of that in order to do what God had already ordained to do before the beginning of time. And yes, God demonstrated his power. He took something like the cross and used it as his tool, his weapon, to achieve victory over sin and death for everyone who believes. Yes, in the cross, God demonstrated his mercy. He took the punishment, the penalty that we deserved and placed it upon his only begotten son. And yes, God demonstrated his authority. The Bible says in Philippians 2, giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God demonstrates 
all of these things. He reveals himself to us when he gets our attention. But there's one other thing, one second thing I want you to see in all of this. When God is getting our attention, he calls for repentance from us. He calls for repentance from us. Notice in verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to him, I have sinned this time. Now, your eyes are not playing tricks on you. Yes, you really did see that. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. You know, at first glance, when we read this, it almost seems like Pharaoh is ready to repent. I mean, if you'd never read this story before, if you're hearing this for the first time, I mean, you get to verse 27, and you read those words, I have sinned, and you're thinking, Amen! Pharaoh finally is starting to get it. He refers to his actions as sin. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, is just. Back in chapter 5, he said, Yahweh, who's that? I've never heard of him. He says, Yahweh is just. He acknowledges that what he has done and what the people have done is wicked. Listen, this might be the only time in Pharaoh's life that he ever admitted being wrong about anything. He claimed to be the head of the Egyptian pantheon. He didn't apologize. He never confessed sin. He never admitted his mistakes. Ever meet anybody like that? Well, Pharaoh is saying some of the right words. But listen to me carefully. With Pharaoh, it's just words. And the word repentance, of course, to repent simply means to turn around. That's a churchy word, and we use that often. But the life of Pharaoh gives us the opportunity to see a little more clearly not only what repentance is, but what repentance is not. You see, this was not true repentance. This was what I call a false repentance. You say, well, how do we know that? Let me just point out to you a few things about Pharaoh's so-called repentance. First of all, it was based on a partial acknowledgement of guilt. Did you notice what he said back in verse 27? I have sinned this time. Excuse me? This time? And of course, we want to ask, what about all those other times? How about when they were throwing the Hebrew babies in the Nile River and drowning all the little baby boys? How about when they gave all that extra work to the Hebrews? The first time Moses said, let my people go. This time? What about the other times? Listen to me carefully. Real repentance is not a partial acknowledgement of guilt. Real repentance is is not confessing some of our sin while making excuses for the rest of them. Real repentance is not saying, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, 
I make mistakes, but hey, I'm better than that other guy. Real repentance involves a complete accounting before God. Real repentance involves a deep, deep acknowledgement of our sin and our guilt before God. That is real repentance. But what we see in Pharaoh is just a partial acknowledgement of guilt. We also know that his repentance is fault because he's still trying to bargain with God. He's still trying to bargain with God. Notice what it says in verse 31. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. You might think, well, that's a weird statement to make right here in this discourse between Moses and Pharaoh. Why is there this commentary about the different crops and what was destroyed and what was not destroyed? Well, here's why. When the hail fell upon Egypt, the flax and barley were destroyed because that is what was in season at that time. On the other hand, the wheat and the spelt were not struck because harvest for those crops came two months later. And therefore, they were not destroyed. Can you see now a little bit the game that Pharaoh is playing? Because Moses saw right through it. Pharaoh's thinking to himself, yeah, I lost one crop, but maybe if I say the right words, maybe if I, if I, if I do a little dance, maybe if I play a little game, maybe I can avoid the destruction of the next crop. And here is Pharaoh. He's still more concerned about the consequences of his sin than he is his sin itself. And we know this because when finally the plague was ended, the Bible says he went right back to his old ways and he refused to let God's people go. Now, over the years, some theologians have referred to this as condemning faith as opposed to what we call saving faith. What Pharaoh had was a condemning faith. In other words, it's not a faith that saves. It's a faith that only condemns. You say, well, well Pastor, what do you mean by that? He had faith to believe that God exists. He had faith to believe that God's judgment was real, but he didn't have faith to repent or turn away from his sin because at the end of the day, he did not want to be under God's authority. He didn't want a divine boss telling him what to do. Just like many people you meet in this world today, they're actually okay intellectually with the thought of a God, that there is a God who exists, that there is a God who created this world. They're okay with God as long as he does not ask anything of them or make any demands over them. You see... Pharaoh didn't want forgiveness. You know what he wanted? He just wanted God to leave him alone. That's not real repentance. The Apostle Paul talked about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And listen to what he said in that 10th verse. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. In other words, you look back on your life and you don't regret having had this kind of sorrow, but 
the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice it's the sorrow of the world. There's a kind of worldly sorrow that a person may have. And let me tell you, this sorrow sometimes runs deep. A person can have this kind of sorrow and have tears that stream down their face, but the Bible says that this type of sorrow does not lead to repentance or salvation. It only leads to death. This is the person who experiences some kind of sorrow, but not for their sin, just the consequences of sin and what it has brought to their lives. At some point, we've all had this experience, maybe when you were a kid, you messed up. You did something wrong. You got in trouble, and you got caught. And, of course, you felt bad, and you cried, and you learned your lesson. You promised that you would never do it again. And I bet at some point your mom or your dad asked you this question. Are you sorry for what you did? Or, you know what's coming next, right? Are you sorry you got caught? You see, that's the difference between godly and worldly sorrow. And I wonder how many times God could ask that same question to us. Well, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh's repentance was false. It was a partial acknowledgement of guilt. He's still trying to negotiate with God but here's the key. There was, there's no abandonment of sin. There's no abandonment of sin. The end of chapter 9 says that when Pharaoh saw the plague had ended, he, quote, sinned yet more and would not let Israel go. Folks, when real repentance takes place, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean we'll never sin again. But it certainly means we won't go right back into our old way of life head first as if nothing ever happened. Real repentance always, always, always involves turning away from sin. So let me just ask you a question as we close this message and as we prepare in a moment for the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you this. What kind of repentance are you demonstrating this morning? Is there that false repentance where maybe you have regrets because of the consequences of your sin, but not your sin itself? Or do you realize that our sin is so hideous in the eyes of a holy God, it took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to provide a solution to it. Maybe this morning we need to stop and pray and say, God, would you, by your grace, give me that godly sorrow? Would you help me to have a deep acknowledgement of sin and guilt so that I can experience forgiveness and restoration deeply as well? 3,000 years ago, the plague of hail fell upon Egypt, and God in His mercy, God in His grace, He provided a shelter. He provided a way for them to escape. And folks, God has done the same today. He provides an escape. He provides a shelter from sin, judgment, death, and hell. And that shelter 
is Jesus Christ. You join me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the times and everything you do to get our attention. Help us now to pay attention to what it is you want to say to us and how you would have us apply all of this to our lives. And God, I pray that there would not be that worldly sorrow, not a hint of it. I pray, God, that we would have an experience that healthy, godly sorrow that causes us to see our sin for what it is, confess it, turn from it, and leave it at the foot of the cross to follow Jesus. Father, would you show us those areas of our lives where repentance should take place this morning, whether it's in our thoughts, our words, some relationship, maybe a sin of omission or commission, maybe some attitude that needs to change. Maybe it's that sin of self-reliance and self-rule. But God, whatever it is, would you show us that we would repent before you this morning. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, we thank you that you've given to us the Lord's Supper as a way of helping bring this about in our lives as we remember how the body of Jesus was broken and as we remember how the blood of Jesus was shed for us, may you use that, oh God, to make us conscious of unconfessed sin in our lives that we would deeply repent before you and help us to observe in a manner that is worthy we want to pray as well, oh God, for those who are here today who have never taken that initial step of repentance by turning from their sin and turning themselves over to Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. God, how I pray for them, how I pray that this would be for them their day of salvation. The day that they see their sin, acknowledge it, repent of it, and turn to you and are saved. Lord, have your way in these moments. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.